0: We are impatient people living in an impatient society. It's here in the United States of America where we can be so impatient uh, that the football game commercials are just a little bit too long. The scan and go the checkout at the grocery store is just a little bit too time-consuming. And who among us ever has time Uh, to wait for the next available operator. Uh, Most of us are on the go. We're in a hurry. uh, So we're never going to walk when we can drive. We're not going to drive when we can fly. Apparently, fast food isn't even fast enough. So now, McDonald's will deliver at your door today. I mean, we are an impatient people. And we we have to have everything on the go and immediately. If patience is a virtue then many of us have concluded that it's quite all right for us not to be virtuous. It is with these thoughts in mind that I want you to take your Bible and turn to the New Testament book of James. This morning we continue our study of that New Testament letter in a sermon that's simply entitled, Hurry Up and Give Me Patience. Hurry up and give me patience. James chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 7 to 12. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, Please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 5, I'll begin at verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. uh, No, let's begin at verse 7. All right. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Uh, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. In our passage, Pastor James returns to the subject of suffering. He admonishes the congregation that when you suffer, you ought to be patient. That's a good word. That's a good piece of advice, that you and I ought to be patient when we endure suffering. We know that there is a high price to pay for impatience. All we have to do is look throughout the pages of the Bible, just take a couple of biblical characters as an example to prove the point. Abraham was impatient. The result... Ishmael was born. Moses was impatient. The result, he was denied and robbed the opportunity to escort the holy people of God into the promised land. The apostle Peter was impatient. The result is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter almost became a murderer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he lopped off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. Impatience carries a hefty price tag. So it is good for us, it is wise for us to heed the words of Pastor James, who simply said that when you endure sickness, sadness, and suffering, when you experience trial, trouble, and tribulation, when you go through tough times in life, simply be patient. But what is patience? I like how Warren Wearsby defines it. When he simply writes that patience is staying put and standing fast when you feel like running away. That's patience. Staying put and standing fast even when you feel like running away. When diabolical difficulties attack your marriage, be patient. Stay put, stand fast, even when you feel like running away. When the job becomes overwhelming and the boss is unbearable. Be patient, which means stay put, stand fast, even when you feel like running away. When parenting your son or daughter becomes so problematic that you just want to throw up your hands in despair and simply walk away, friend, be patient. Stay put, stand fast, even when you feel like running away. You and I are called to be patient. We are to demonstrate this type of patience. I've heard what you have heard. People have said, you know what? I I, I don't ever pray for patience. I don't ever ask God for patience because then he will send me a situation to teach me patience. Friend, it's really a mute point for you to pray or not pray for patience because patience is something that you and I are to demonstrate. You may ask the question, how long do I have to demonstrate this patience? And James replies, and I quote, till the Lord's coming. Are you kidding me? We've got to be patient until Jesus comes back. We've got to be patient with problematic people and difficult scenarios and situations until the Lord's coming. We've got to be patient with our spouse and our children and our grandchildren. We've got to be patient with the cranky boss and the grumpy church members. We've got to be patient with the obnoxious neighbors until Jesus comes back. Are you kidding can... We've got to be patient with the person at the checkout line who never smiles. We've got to be patient with... With the person that's on the other end uh, serving as a customer service rep. And, And at best, she speaks broken English. And you're convinced she's in some sweatshop in Calcutta. Are you kidding me? We've got to be patient in all things and at all times. And the simple biblical answer is yes. We are called to be patient until Jesus comes back. So when... Is his return I mean if we've got to be patient until Jesus comes back I'm just trying to check out how long I've got to be patient so when will he return isn't it ironic that most of us when we think about the return of Christ we want it to happen when we're experiencing suffering but when things are going well we think to ourselves you know what Jesus this is probably not a good day for you to come back I mean if you just came into a large sum of money If today is your wedding day, if you're about to embark on a world class vacation, you may think to yourself, Jesus, don't come back today. Today's not a good day. Uh, Why don't you come back next week or next month? But today's not a good day. But my friend, if you were just diagnosed with heart disease, if you just experienced a vicious car wreck, if you were just given uh, unemployment by your boss, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. When we suffer, when we have trials, when there are difficulties in life, we want Jesus to come soon and very soon. But the question is, when is Jesus going to come back? The only hint that little brother James gives us to this question is in verse 8, that the Lord's coming is near. Now, that word near in the Greek can be rendered and understood in a spatial sense or a temporal sense. Let me describe and define that. By uh, spatially, I mean that sometimes this word can be used to describe something that is near, that is close by in proximity. The pew is close to me. It is near me because it's near to me in space. Uh, But there's also an understanding that is temporal, that it is near in the sense that it's the next thing on the chronological clock. I think this is what James has in mind. When he thinks about the coming of big brother Jesus, he is saying that it is near. It's the next thing on the timetable. That when we come to redemptive history, that this is the next thing that needs to happen. That Jesus will come. He'll peek over that eastern sky. Jesus will come. And his coming is near in the sense that it is soon. Soon. Jesus will return. Now, I want to be very clear. I am not going to bring out some eschatological charts with demons and dragons and fire on them. I am not even going to remotely try to speculate dates and times, but I'm just going to echo what James says that the Lord's coming is near. It is soon, it's the next thing on God's cosmic clock. Jesus is coming soon I don't know when that soon will be but friend it will not be long before Gabriel blows the horn It will not be long before Jesus peels back the eastern sky. Not going to be too much longer till Jesus mounts his white horse and is draped in the royal robe, dipped in blood. It won't be long until Jesus comes and rescues the church. Friends, I came this morning to tell you, I know it's been 2,000 years, and I know that some of you are losing a little bit of hope. But let me just remind you that Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. His arrival is near, according to James chapter 5. So in the meantime, how do we live? And James tells the church we ought to live with patience. Stay put. Stand fast. Even when you feel like running away. Live with patience until the Lord's coming. Like a good preacher, James gives us three illustrations to prove his point. He says, be patient like a farmer, verses 7, 8, and 9. Be patient like a prophet, verse 10. Be patient like Job, verses 11 and 12. First, James says to the church, be patient like a farmer. One of my favorite farmers is a man that none of you will know. His name is Danny Cobb. And Danny would oftentimes tell me, Preacher, uh, us farmers, we ain't never happy. Uh, We're we're always complaining. Either we're complaining about too much rain, fearful that the crops will rot in the field, or we're complaining about not enough rain, uh, fearful that uh, the crops will burn up in a drought. But you know, Preacher, the good Lord knows what we need that last phrase became our little tagline that in the middle of the summer once the rain would come I'd go to church I'd see Danny and I would just look at him and say the good Lord knows what we need and he would chuckle and nod and say you're right in the spring of the year once the spring rain stopped and the sun popped up giving warmth and growth to the ground We would meet for church on Sunday and Danny would catch me at some point and look at me and say, the good Lord knows what we need. And that's true. The farmer understands that the good Lord knows what we need. James says that the farmer is patient with the uh, spring rains and the autumn rains. He is patient. And why is the farmer patient? Because he knows the harvest is coming and the harvest is worth it. The farmer waits with great patience because the harvest is coming and the harvest is worth it. James says that the land produces a valuable crop. That phrase valuable crop literally means a precious fruit. Ironically, it is Peter who uses that same word for precious to describe the blood of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 when he says the precious blood of the lamb covers over our sin. It is precious, it is valuable. James says that the farmer waits patiently because he knows the harvest is coming and the land will produce. Friend, you may be in a spiritual drought. You may be in a spiritual downpour. Regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I I came to tell you that God is up to something good. He is up to producing a good harvest in you and through you. So be patient like a farmer. James goes on to write that farmer stands firm. That's a word that literally means to strengthen the heart. Don't get discouraged when there's not enough rain. Don't lose heart when there's too much rain from your perspective. No, be patient, Uh, be steadfast, persevere, Uh, have a heart that is encouraged. Some have said that this word is a military term meaning to stand your post, to be unwavered, immovable. Uh, Don't let anything knock you off your point. Don't let anything dissuade you. Don't let anything keep you from doing what God has called you to do. So he says to be patient, stand firm. It would seem to me that James is ending the letter in the robust fashion in which he begins the letter. Uh, James comes out of the gates, swinging both arms and firing both barrels when he says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And when we studied James chapter 1 verse 3, we commented on how is it possible to consider joy when you face trials of many kinds? Certainly our joy is not in the trial. Uh, It is perfectly fine for believers to say, I hate cancer. I hate the fact that my spouse left me. I hate the fact that my child died in a car wreck. It's perfectly fine to say there are certain life experiences that we just despise. Our joy is not in the situation. Our joy is in the savior of the situation. Our joy is not in the crisis. Our joy is in the Christ of the crisis. Our joy is not in the mess. Our joy is in the Messiah of the mess. Because we know that Jesus is bigger than our problems. We do not have joy in cancer. We have joy in the Jesus who's bigger than the cancer. We don't take joy in divorce. We take joy in the Jesus who's bigger than divorce. We don't take joy in the death of a loved one. We take joy in the Jesus who's bigger than the death of a loved one. Just like Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The psalmist said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. David said after his escapade with Bathsheba, restore the joy of your salvation. Jesus you are my joy we get to the end of the letter and James is saying the same thing he's singing the same song he simply says be patient like a farmer that farmer waits that farmer waits for the harvest and as he waits for the harvest he stands firm he is immovable he is not shaken off of his responsibility And all the while, um, don't grumble, James says. Now once again, James has to bring up the topic of the tongue. Once again, he has to talk about speech. This is about the fifth time he's talked about it. It's only a five-chapter book. In every chapter, James has something to say about how we talk. Here he says, do not grumble. He speaks of speech and chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 1, and here in chapter 5, verse 9. Now, why would James have to talk so much about speech to God's people? Maybe it's because there are times that we say things we ought not to say. Let me ask you this. When you are experiencing the dark night of the soul, when you're experiencing suffering, When you are stressed out, are you tight-tongued or loose-lipped? Maybe I'm the only one in the crowd, but there are times that when I get stressed, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, I might say something that I would later regret. Anybody else like that? Okay, just a couple of us, we're the only honest ones in the crowd because everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. And here James says, Do not grumble, for you are focused on the task that's in front of you. Do not miss the lesson of the farmer that while the farmer patiently waits, he works. James is telling the crowd that as you wait for the Lord, work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out the word of God and the will of God in your life. Don't stand idly by. Don't be consumed with your circumstances. Don't be derailed with your debilitation. Do not allow what's going on around you to dictate how faithfully you serve the Lord. You continue to work. While you wait, keep working. I don't know any farmer who's lazy. Every farmer I know is a very hard worker tilling the ground, planting the seed, weeding the garden. And James says, do not miss the lesson of the farmer, that while the farmer waits, he works. While you wait for the Lord's return, you be steadfast, you be immovable, you be faithful in the work that God has called you to do. Secondly, James says we're to be as patient as the prophets, verse 10. Now, why would James lift up the prophets as an example? He says that they are a great illustration of facing trials and facing suffering. Apparently, the prophets were individuals who endured tragedy and all the while they were faithful unto the end. Jesus references these Old Testament prophets several places, but one is in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. In the introduction of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever lived, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because in the same way, that's how they treated the prophets. Now James, the little brother of our Lord, says, I want to have a beatitude. I I want a beatitude in my book. So in James chapter 1 verse 12, little brother uh, James, he has a beatitude. The beatitude is is blessed is the man who perseveres in the trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised. Here towards the end of the book, uh, James chapter 5, I think that he is referencing back to James chapter 1, verse 12. The one who persevered unto the end, those are the prophets. Stop and think about those prophets. They, they were faithful to God, um, and they didn't necessarily do anything wrong. In fact, they were doing a lot of things right when they were persecuted. Elijah comes to mind. Elijah gained an audience with the most powerful man in israel at that time the wicked king ahab and elijah simply said there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word and this james Spann meteorological report sounds odd to us after elijah spoke those words he nodded his head he turned around and walked away he left king ahab stunned why Because Ahab had led the people of God into the worship of Baal, and Baal was believed to be the God who controlled the weather forecast. And Elijah, the prophet of God, was saying that Baal is no God at all. In fact, he's a lousy God. My God, Yahweh himself, is going to show himself strong and mighty, and he is going to hold you accountable, and he's going to judge your disobedience. For three years, there was a drought. Elijah had to experience that drought. Elijah wasn't privileged. He wasn't taken someplace and didn't have the, feel the effects of the drought. No, he endured the drought. And yet even in that moment, he was still faithful in his obedience unto the Lord. Think about Daniel. Daniel had set it upon his heart not to defile himself before the Lord. Daniel was a man who was committed to prayer. He was convicted about prayer. In fact uh, he couldn't go a day without praying as air is to breathing so prayer was through the life of Daniel the king had issued the decree that if anyone were to pray over the next 30 days to any man or any god except for the king that that person would be thrown into the lion's den i'm sure that some of daniel's friends told him hey just pipe down on the praying stuff it's only 30 days can't you go 30 days without praying? And Daniel must have looked at them and said, can you go 30 days without breathing? No, I can't go a day without praying. And the Bible says that Daniel would pray three times a day. He would open his windows. He would pray unto the Lord asking for God's help. They found Daniel praying. They threw him into the lion's den Better stated, the lions were in Daniel's den versus Daniel being in the lion's den. But you may know some of the story that it is God who rescues Daniel. And Daniel is alive even though he's there with ferocious animals. And all the while, Daniel was obedient. And even in spite of his obedience, he still had to endure persecution and hardship. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three Hebrew boys who said, we will not bow down. To the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has constructed. And King Nebuchadnezzar was so frustrated, he ordered for the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated. And he called his men to throw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with all their clothes on so they'd be even more inflammable. And as they went into the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar pulled up a chair to watch them fry. And as he was watching, he saw not three, but four men, unbound and unharmed. And he said, the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now, you and I can debate about this, but I'm convinced that fourth one was Jesus himself. Jesus came, and he had protective custody over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of Dancing with the Stars. This is Dancing with the Savior. Jesus showed up in the midst of the fiery furnace, and he delivered these heroes. Hebrew boys, Nebuchadnezzar called for these guys to come out. And when they came out of the fiery furnace, everybody gathered around and they were in awe because these men, they were not burned. Not a hair on their head was singed. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And God had delivered them. Maybe you've heard what I've read. I've been told and I've read on numerous occasions that the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God will not keep you the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God will not keep you and here James is urging the congregation to be as patient as the prophets and I know he doesn't say this but I think it's implied there, it's at the heart of the passage. When he thinks about the prophet, he must think about the prophet par excellence, big brother Jesus. And Jesus was obedient in all of his suffering. He was obedient in all of his trials and tragedy. He was obedient in all of his life experiences. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friend, regardless of whether you find yourself in a drought, or regardless of whether you find yourself in a lion's den, or maybe you may find yourself from time to time in a fiery furnace, or perhaps you may be crucified with Christ. I came to tell you what James is telling you. I want you to be patient, to be as patient as the prophets. Don't miss the lesson of the prophets. That while they waited, they witnessed. While they waited, they witnessed. They witnessed while they were waiting for the harvest, while they were waiting for the second coming, while they were waiting for God to show up, all the while they were testifying to the grace and the goodness, to the majesty and the mercy of God Almighty. James is telling the crowd, don't miss the lesson of the farmer. While the farmer waits, he works. Don't miss the lesson of the prophets. While they were waiting They were witnessing. But third and finally, he says to be patient as Job. Out of all the biblical characters, the one that is most synonymous with perseverance in the midst of suffering is Job. Job's story is uh, 42 chapters long. Job is described as blameless and upright. Anybody here want to be described as blameless and upright? Job is elsewhere described as one who loved God and shunned evil. Anybody here want to be described as one who loves God and shuns evil? Yet in the matter of just a couple of days, Job suffered insurmountable suffering. He lost his seven sons and three daughters to death. He lost his 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camel and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. All this happened to Job in one day. In one day, he lost the family and the fortune and the farm. He lost it all. What we know as the reader of Job's story, Job did not know as the one living his story. You see, we know that God was talking about Job behind Job's back. Hey, if you ever realized and learned that God was talking about you behind your back, would you have a beef with God? Apparently, the devil had been roaming the earth. He gained an audience with God. And he said, God, uh, have you considered your servant Job? You know, if you... Took away your hand of favor upon him, he would curse you. The only reason he's serving you is because of the blessings that you give to him. You remove your hand of blessing, he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to the devil, You don't know my servant Job as well as I know my servant Job. Go ahead, do what you have planned. But you cannot take his life. The devil went. And one day, I've already told you, he lost everything. Can you imagine the pain of having to go to a funeral and when you walk into the sanctuary, you see the ten caskets of your ten children? Can you imagine that pain? Can you imagine the sorrow? It must have gripped his heart. He lost all of his livestock. He Lost uh, all the fortune of the farm. The next day, he woke up and Job had sores, painful sores, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. In a matter of 48 hours, he lost everything that mattered to him. He lost his health, he lost his money, he lost his his family, his children. I mean, he lost everything. Eventually, his wife gave him... (laughs) this solid advice why don't you curse God and die well thank you honey I really appreciate your encouragement there that's a, really a, a you know it's, it's an idea uh, but I think I'll just sit here and pray you know I do find it ironic that it, in a matter of two days Job lost everything that mattered to him but somehow his wife managed to stay alive I guess that's a sermon for another day, and some of y'all will get that later this afternoon. Eventually, his friends showed up. His friends uh, came and they sat with him in silence. That's the best thing that they did. You know, sometimes when you have a grieving friend, the best thing you can do is just sit there and be quiet. Don't say a word. Your ministry of presence will minister more than anything you have to say. Once you open your mouth, you'll mess it up. Eventually the friends opened their mouths and they messed it up. Apparently they believed in karma. You know, that... Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Job, this is really bad, so you must be really bad. What sin do you need to confess? Now, you and I as the reader know that Job had done nothing wrong. And yet these friends began to talk. From chapter 3 on for 35 chapters. There's this nonstop nonsense dribble and, and just ideas that are flowing back and forth between Job and his friends and his friends and his friends and Job. And it's just chaotic and it's just a mess. And for 35 chapters, God says nothing. Then eventually in 38, God finally speaks. In chapter 38, God finally speaks. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 42, God had restored to Job twofold, which is exactly what James is talking about, that Job was faithful in perseverance, and at the end of his life, he received twice as much as he ever had before. So you read in chapter 42 that God gave him 14,000 sheep, and 6,000 camel, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and and 1,000 donkeys. And he also gave him seven other sons and three other daughters. Now, if you think about it, you may think to yourself uh, wait now, if it's twice as much, shouldn't, shouldn't Job have 14 sons and six daughters? And the reality is, he did. Job did end his life with 14 sons and six daughters. Because if you're a believing parent and you've ever had to stand at the casket of a believing child, you know that child didn't die. That child just relocated to heaven to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. At the end of Job's life, he sure enough had 14 sons and he sure enough had six daughters. And all the while, Job was faithful unto God. There may be some of you listening to my voice who ask the question, if God is so merciful and if God is so compassionate, why didn't he just stop all the tragedy in Job's life? For that matter, why didn't he stop your tragedy and my tragedy? If God is so good, if he is so merciful, if he is so kind, if he is so benevolent, then why doesn't he just stop all the madness and all the chaos of the suffering of our lives? And friends, if you've had that question, I want you to know you're not by yourself. You are not alone. A lot of people have asked that question. A lot of ink has been spilt trying to explain that question. But this much I'll say. God may not keep you from it, but he will keep you through it. He may not keep you from the tragedy, but he will keep you through the tragedy. He may not keep you from the death, but he will keep you through the death. And I just believe that God uses our tragedy to teach us something great. I think that suffering is a tool in the hand of God. Because there's some lessons that we only learn through pain instead of pleasure. That if we didn't have to go through the pain, if all we had was the pleasure, we would never learn the lesson. And I'm convinced that God is not being mean. He's not being evil. He's not being vindictive. He's being a loving Father who is teaching us what He needs us to know about Him and about ourselves. And I think sometimes He permits horrific things to happen because He has a purpose to promote. I think that sometimes God allows things to happen because He knows That the only way we'll learn it is through pain instead of pleasure. This morning, uh, do not forget the lesson of Job that while Job was waiting for God to speak, he worshiped. You read the 42 chapters of the book of Job, and Job never once denied God, he never once cursed God. Oh, he struggled, he had difficulties, he had thoughts, but he never denied God. He never disowned God. In fact, in chapter 1, it is Job who says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friend, that is worship. When you can say, God gives and God takes away, and God is still God, and God is still good. In chapter 13, Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Friend, that is all out radical worship. For somebody to say to God, God, even if you take everything from me, even the air that's in my lungs, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. I will not turn my back on you. I will not disown you. I will not deny you. I will not blame you. Oh God, though you slay me, I will still hope in you. Friend, that's worship. In chapter 23 of Job, Job says the Lord knows the way that I take and when he has finished testing me I will come forth as pure gold why does suffering happen To glorify God and to purify you. That's why suffering happens. God uses the suffering to remove the dross from your life. God uses the suffering to glorify himself and to purify you. That's exactly what he did in Job's life. God knows the way that I take. And when he's finished testing me, I will come forth as pure gold. Do not miss the lesson of Job. As Job was waiting patiently, he was worshiping. This morning I wonder, what chapter do you find yourself in? Are you in Job chapter 1? a Bunch of terrible stuff's happening. Are you in Job chapter 3 or 11 or 27 where you got a bunch of friends that are around you and they're just speaking nonsense? Are you in chapter 38 where God is finally speaking? Are you in chapter 42 where God is blessing your socks off? and he's blessing you more now than he ever has before what chapter do you find yourself in this morning friend regardless while you wait patiently worship do not miss the lesson of the farmer while he waits he works do not miss the lesson of the prophets That while they waited, they witnessed. Do not miss the lesson of Job. That while he waited, he worshipped. Of course, our greatest example in all of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus was so faithful to God. He went into a garden of Gethsemane. He prayed and he sweat drops of blood. He said, not my will, but your will be done. He rose, determined to do the will of the Father. He had a cross strapped to his back. He was beaten beyond all human recognition. He went up a hill called Golgotha. There they stretched him out, and he died for your sins and mine. And in that moment, while he was waiting for God to deliver him, he worked. Not my will, but your will be done. And while Jesus was waiting for God to deliver him, He witnessed, today you'll be with me in paradise. And while Jesus was waiting for God to deliver him, he worshiped into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus bowed his head. He died. He gave up the ghost. His dead body was placed into a borrowed grave. But on the third day Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to more than 500 believers at the same time. He appeared to the disciples to prove once and for all that he really was alive. And then some months, some weeks later he ascended into the heavens and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is waiting for that day when the Father will say to his son go get your church and Jesus will come and he will split the eastern sky he will descend he will rescue us and in the meantime while we're waiting for him wait patiently be as patient as a farmer who works be as patient as the prophets who witness be as patient as Job who worships the Lord and all the while keep a peek on that eastern sky because one day the Lord's coming and he will return look look I know it's been 2,000 years, but this is not a crutch for the weak-minded. This is real. This is fact. For Jesus will come back. Until that day comes, work. Until that day comes, witness. Until that day comes, worship with everything you've got. Because he is worth it heavenly father we bow before you we give you this invitation and lord i don't know what everybody's going through but i have a holy hunch that some people are struggling and suffering lord help us in the midst of our trials and trouble help us to wait patiently for you father we declare today that you're a good god that you do all things well Draw your people to yourself. If there's somebody here in need of salvation, let today be the day of their salvation. If there's somebody here who needs to join the church, let today be that day. Somebody here needs to come and pray. The altar's open. Oh, Father, help us to patiently wait for you. In Jesus' name.